It's the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, journalist, author, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. And to that end, on this latest episode, I was joined by Nikki de Costa, Senior Counsel for the Cicero Group, more pertinently, former Director of Legal Affairs at Number 10 Downing Street. She quit about six months ago, and it's been uh, downhill for Theresa May in Parliament ever since, really. Are the two things connected? Well, that's for other people to say, isn't it? And uh, we were joined again by Anand Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. We recorded this chat last week. Lots has changed since then. Much has stayed the same, though. So there's plenty of chat about the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, or WAB, as it's known in Parliament. Plenty about the Tory leadership and some speculation about the next general election. And some nice colour about the Chief Whip. Plus there's a new feature, complete with a new jingle. So stay tuned for that. I'll be back with the notices at the end. Here's the chat. Do you get a bit fed up with being introduced as the former Director of Legislative (laughs) Affairs? You know, is your life about more than the time you spent in Number 10? Or are you just very proud to have spent any time working in Number 10? Because, you know, that's a big deal. I think you have to be proud of the time you spent there and also how it shapes you. And in many ways, you know, people go into number 10 because they know that that is about saying to the world, this is, this is the game I have been part of. Um, so, no, I, I, I'm proud of my time there. Um, it's not, it's, it, you know, it's coming up on six months ago still. I, I'm still very much immersed. So, um, no, I don't mind at all. So um, how often do you talk to them? To number 10? Yeah. I talk to government quite a lot. Um, I try not to put my old team in any difficult positions. Okay. So right. we, we will talk, uh, you know, maybe just catch up uh, every few months. Right. Um, but um, we are on good terms, amicable terms. There are times when I've been helpful, um, I think, in terms of because I've had a similar view to government on some things, so for example, uh, things that uh, Oliver Letman was doing <laughs> in Parliament. Um, but in general, I try and, try and not cross the divide too yeah. much. <laughs> and what did you do? I mean, you know, for a layman, direct, or layperson, I should say, director of legislative affairs. That was toxic masculinity, everyone. No, that wasn't toxic masculinity. That was the opposite of toxic masculinity. I'll drop that in there. Wait to hear what I've been doing this morning. I'll tell you about it afterwards. You love it. Um, yeah, director of legislative affairs. Uh, it sounds good, but it doesn't mean anything to most people. So what does it actually involve? So it came out of uh, Canada had a very similar system. And this was sort of the brainchild of Jeremy Haywards. Uh, Civil servants had known for quite some time that number 10 was really appalling at understanding Parliament. Geographic distance plus um, a degree of of complacency regarding having a majority meant that often decisions would be taken in isolation and in sort of Parliament, sort of an afterthought. The result of the general election and Brexit, meaning that your main policy is something opposed actually by the majority of MPs in Parliament, meant you needed somebody there uh, and to do three things. First of all, to within number 10, to take charge of the legislative programme, to say I am responsible for both the Brexit and domestic legislation, uh, and I'm going to keep that in your mind, I'm going to fight for it, I'm going to make sure it's mentioned in meetings uh, that the Prime Minister's kept appraised. Second thing is to keep Parliament in the room. So what that means is to say when somebody says, oh, we should use this line in the media or we should go with this policy for you to say, it's all very well and good. 
it's not going to make it through. Or if you want to attempt it, you need to be aware that these are the risks and this is how difficult it's going to be. But you're giving them context. And the third aspect was, um, as I love the phrase in my job description, was to contextualise the advice of the business managers, uh, <laughs> 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 which essentially means to provide an opposing view or to provide context to, for why the business managers might think a particular thing. And so the, how that was phrased to me on, on when I, Gavin Barwell interviewed me was, you know, the chief whip is naturally going to be risk averse and sometimes we're going to need to do things. So your job is to actually help uh, manage that risk-averse nature and, and keep things moving. So did you have to spend a load of time schmoozing MPs then? No, not so much for that. Um, there was a degree of trying to establish my own network, but it was always meant to be that not to challenge the whip's office. So it wasn't about establishing a separate whipping operation. David Cameron had had his fingers burnt on doing that. Um, more of it was about building those links across Whitehall, making sure uh, secretaries of state were taking their bills seriously, spads were all over, and that they were doing the sort of sherpering with their MPs and they mm -hmm. were doing the hard work in addition to the whip's office. Um, I mean, as my son would say, he'd go, boom, because that is blowing my mind. And, and what? I mean, why wasn't number 10 already thinking about Parliament? That seems amazing. Well, I mean, not these, I mean, partly... Uh, just in the sense that, you know, that's how government works. Maybe number 10 should be talking to government, to Parliament and thinking about Parliament a bit more. But also perhaps in the con in the sense that it's been quite a long time since we had a proper majority government and that feels slightly like catching up with the event seven years too late Well, creating that post. Yes and no. I mean, the coalition was a majority government and mm -hmm. the coordination took place presumably in number 10, so Parliament was unnecessary there because, you're, you know, in the old days, think back, you had a functioning whip system. You had parties that broadly agreed on a legislative agenda. I mean, they might have disagreed at the margins, but they weren't the rifts you have now over Brexit. So actually, I mean, this one of the things that Brexit is, is a wonderful learning process, isn't it? And it's taught us about our system. And our That's system one was one of, you know, where government governed and parliament did yep. what it was told. Yeah. And actually, that was, our system was designed to run that, that under those rules. So it was a job created by Brexit. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'd say and the general election. If the numbers hadn't been quite as bad, yeah, uh, maybe they wouldn't have they pulled the trigger on actually saying yes, we need that role. But that 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 coming out of that and facing the fact that there was no majority and the fact that you're going to be reliant on DUP votes meant that you'd have to really be focusing on every tiny little issue. So you popped the champagne when you saw the exit poll. <laughs> I didn't even know this was in the office. I, I was busy running my own business, uh, following a growth plan, um, deciding about making my first hire. So um, I did not expect to get her, get the call again. But it's a job that's here to stay. I think it is. And no matter what happens with Brexit, it's... I, I think it's wise to, to keep it. I think um, certainly we showed the advantages of it. Um, it was useful to have that additional advice, I think, in the room. And also it made things move a lot quicker. If you're always reliant on going to the whip's office and requiring them to get into the weeds of policy, actually, they're not actually always staffed to do that. They're going to have maybe, well, this, this chief whip, I think, now has five special advisors. Um, but usually this chief whip has sort of maybe two special advisors. And asking them to cover all the policies is, is a lot. And I think also you've got to bear in mind that I, partly maybe as a cause of Brexit, uh, as, a, as a result of Brexit, partly, I think, predating it, you now have real substantive differences within the parties on policy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you take the two extremes of the Conservative Party on agricultural policy, and my God, they don't like mm. each other and can't talk to each other. And the same in the Labour Party. So actually, it's not just that the parties are divided over Brexit, but increasingly there are habits of division that extend to normal policy. So even once Brexit is done, 
you will probably need to handle your troops differently to how we used to. And they've learnt tactics from observing how, you know, oh, that's interesting, that that group has used that. We can use that when we do our rebellion. Um, it's like Parliament's becoming self-aware or something. What's what what <laughs> they call it? The singularity. Yeah, well, it's that's one of the reasons, just... I think, why, you know, the Labour leadership, when they saw the whole Letwin thing, weren't exactly keen mm-hmm. because one of the things in their mind was, oh, my God, this sort of thing could be used against us Absolutely. down the line. Um I mean, you mentioned the, the chief whip. He's got five spats. Yes. I mean, he does seem quite a special sort of chief whip. Oh, you're going on to my favourite topic, aren't you? Um, I feel very bad because usually I think that it's really important to be very measured. And it's become somewhat of, of legend that the one thing I poke fun at is, is the chief whip. Um, so I, I, I think I'll, I'll be restrained in my comments. But he's got five spats. Um, part of that has been the pressures of the role. Uh, part of that has been um, how he likes to operate. Can he count? Um, well, we I do. mean, it does seem to me there's a basic, basic across the house. There is a basic lack yeah. of numeracy. I mean, you hear the stories about the thirty Labour MPs mm-hmm. who are going to back the bill. You hear the stories about X number of Tories who are going to, and, and it all evaporates. So, usually in a, in a whipping operation, the chief whip shouldn't actually have to hold the numbers himself, but his deputy or his assistant chief whip will have the numbers, and they should be really on it. Uh, and the chief whip should be calling on those numbers and testing them. Um, so. What I would say is, is can the operation count? Um, I would say that we all know from the leaks from Cabinet that prior to the first meaningful vote, uh, I think even just a week prior, the Chief Whip was saying we should win it. I think that the Chief Whip can count, but sometimes it doesn't wish to. <laughs> the Chief Whip can count. What a, what a, what a revelation. Um, You'll see that on Twitter in a couple of days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you will. Uh, well, no, a week when this comes out. Um, but... I suppose I wasn't trying to pick on the chief whip or anything, but I mean, just as an observer, I have noticed he's a far more public chief whip than I can ever remember. You know, he invites ITB around for a chat. He's often stoting around. Um, that's a technical term. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's often stoting around, uh, giving his views on things. And as I remember it, chief whips just used to sort of work in the shadows in the past. So this, I mean, it's not just that I've. No, it, 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 <laughs> that has, it, has raised, it has raised eyebrows amongst the, the whipping fraternity. What's that about then? Is it a whippers, a whippers club? Oh, that sounds awful, doesn't it? A whipping well, club. I bet there is, yeah. Go on, we'll do that. that. Anyone that's been through the whips office always feels a lot of allegiance to that. Um, there's actually a uh, you know a display up in, in Park Class House at the moment that, yeah, um, about the usual channels, and there's only ever been four civil servants in that principal role the phenomenal civil servants that have done such an amazing job but they are sort of the continuity um, but that also helps shape the operation so you know you, you tend to be there's ways of operating you know we used to talk about you know the whips code and what you did and didn't do mm. um, this is sort of wider than that is that chief whips aren't meant to be in the limelight it's why chiefs don't actually speak on the front benches um, they're meant to be um, hidden um, not thinking about you know what will posterity think of me I think this chief whip's taken a slightly different approach I mean, I'm not not trying to pick it up. I'm genuinely just interested because it is so different. You know, last question on this, but uh, so sure? I don't. Yeah, I don't want to get sidelined and you know, let's do a podcast all about two it. hours <laughs> later. But I'm I just don't want to pick on the. But is it because is that because of Brexit and the particular circumstances, or is it because he's got a massive ego? Um, 
Well, I think that, that answers, <laughs> I think that answers <laughs> that, that question. That's not fact. You know, people are shaped. You know, the chief and I have been through many, let's say, duels, and that that shapes how, therefore, you react to that person. Which means that I may not necessarily react in a way that's particularly fair to him. Um, I would say that he, you know, he he wants to have profile. Um, we've seen that in both his media, but also in his Twitter. You know, sometimes that's sort of slightly inappropriate tweet of you know the phone off the hook photo or something like that. And and I think you know that that's the nature of it. And also. You know, maybe maybe Westminster has evolved. It, it is all geared to you know profile and being on Twitter, and maybe that's just encouraged a different way of thinking. Um, and more broadly, mm-hmm. I mean, that maybe answers my question as to what was frustrating or who was frustrating. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, just in terms yeah. of life in t- inside mm. Downing Street, um, particularly you know, given what's been going on, and particularly given the role you had, which mm. you know is, is very apposite. Um, you know, was it fun? Yes. Did you I enjoy mean, it? I did. I, I loved every moment of it. Uh, it was the most stimulating work I've ever done. Um, it is a job that uses and should use every part of you and should, particularly as a, as a political advisor, require you to give everything you've got. Um, you know, I sort of often use the analogy of, you know, we, we should be like mayflies. We may not be around very long, so we have to give everything uh, because that's our job to keep and the it was 24-7. Yeah, but, you know, but it's addictive. That's the problem. You know, we, we say social media is addictive, but also you know, checking the work emails. And, you know, I, I was very struck by various people saying, you know, um, the kind of things that you're dealing with and become commonplace are actually huge. Um, and so, no, I, I, it, you know, a privilege to have been there will always be a privilege to have served. Um, but and you touched on this already, and in terms of what Brexit has shown us about how government, how Parliament works, has it shown our government with a small G in a bad light? I mean, it's shown up the problems, or has it actually shown you know it works how it should work? I think what it has done is it has encouraged, you know, what we said earlier, you know, there have been lessons that have learned. So, you know, people have gone on, uh, oh, I hate the phrase, sorry, <laughs> gone on a journey um, whereby, oh, I know, it's factor. terrible. <laughs> all, all the you speak today. <laughs> right? um, Tell us your story. <laughs> Uh, where they they've, they've realised that it's no good just saying oh that'll get through Parliament. So people have become much more aware. They're they're really looking at the details of the policy more. So that's been a good evolution. So I think how Whitehall has responded uh, has been good. I think in terms of how Parliament has responded in general, the the legislative process ha- um, has worked. And I sort of but what I do is I, I put a marker down of sort of pre-November 2018 and post-November 2018. Pre-November 2018, when the standing orders were the standing orders mm. uh, and they weren't touched and therefore there was a level playing field and rules that everyone could operate by and therefore you could develop a strategy knowing well if we do x this is the range of options available to our opponents once uh, dominic grieve and the speaker worked together to lift the start lifting the standing orders so that you didn't have that certainty basically it brought in a huge amount of uncertainty it meant you couldn't plan which basically led to even further paralysis uh, if we can have further paralysis uh, in terms of what we were we were dealing with and so for those reasons I'd say mostly it's shown it's led to good lessons it's made people work harder uh, they've had to think harder which I think is a good thing uh, they haven't had to be as complacent but now we're kind of in a position where actually I think you'd tweak a few things uh, if you did manage to get a majority or, or um, for those aspects. So that's a whole different world of po- I mean mm. do we need to institutionalise this if we we're really talking about a world and I've been struck mm. talking to MPs about the fact that they say if you can't rely on your colleagues and you can't rely on your whips, you're suddenly confronted with an awful lot of reading. Mm, yes. 
because you've got to learn about you know, <laughs> absolutely you, you've suddenly got to learn about things yourself and make up yeah. your own mind but then shouldn't they, they all need to be better resourced surely they need bigger offices they need research stuff if the MPs are going to do the work themselves as individuals doesn't that just call for a whole different structure in Parliament I, I think so I mean, but I have long been a proponent of saying you know if you compare MPs remuneration across Europe but it gets very complicated because people look at it and say oh you know our MPs are, are being paid this amount or they've got this amount of allowance but um, in terms of what you ask the MPs to do um, when usually they have, you know, um, constituency officer, uh, a, a, a diary secretary, and a researcher, it's not really enough to to go into things in detail. So uh, yes, I w- I would see certainly, or you might do some more group resourcing. Certainly on the conservative side, there's something called the parliamentary research unit. Uh, you need to look at all those kind of mechanisms and think how do we do that. At the moment, I think the Commons Library do a remarkable job, kind of on uh, a putting that, that. Yes. I mean, MPs doing work. This doesn't seem radical at all. I think you're being very, aren't you being very kind to MPs there? And I mean, they should read the stuff. I mean, they should not be walking in well, going, yes, well, that's what the whip told well, me to do. That's what well, we don't want. Well, let's be careful this sort of caricature. I mean, yeah. Most MPs are specialists in two or maybe three areas, and that's where they focus their energies. And for the rest of the stuff, they have to have faith in the whipping system and their colleagues to guide them in the right direction. Mm. I mean, it wouldn't always have been the case. There's a massive great piece of legislation mm. in an area you weren't interested in that they'd read it. Yeah. I mean, you just got to accept that fact. Have we? Yeah. Okay. I, 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 I mean, I think we have to always think about you know the workload for MPs is humongous, um, and so you know to say if we say to them we want you to be a fail with every single policy area and do your constituency work and do all the outreach you know and adds up and spend the time you know it, it, it just there's a limit to what we do as an industry. Think of it as a business. Would you put a single person? to cover all those policy areas and, if you wouldn't do it. And just to add to that, think of the salutary lesson of Labour in Scotland, which was, in future, we probably should visit our constituencies every now and again. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, the, the times uh, have changed. People no, have to spend I... a lot more time now worrying about their constituency than they used to. And and so the workload builds up on all sorts of different fronts. You see, what you've done there, you've mentioned the, the dread word, which Scotland. had released the genie in my head. <laughs> right? No, I'll have, no, you can't have that in Scotland. I mean, I take your point that Labour MPs obviously were lazy and hopeless, but they didn't get beat because they were lazy and hopeless. They'd been lazy and hopeless for years. They got beat because of the the great yellow wave of independence. Yeah, so but, it's nothing but, but, to do with well, them and their abilities as MPs. I would hazard because a guess good that, MPs got wiped away in in twenty fifteen as yeah, well. Yeah, maybe, but I think it contributed. I think it definitely contributed to the fact that people just thought, here is a bunch of entitled people who think that basically they don't really need to show up and they'll get elected. And I don't think I don't think that sort of characterization which was quite widespread helped wow. you're absolutely right there were other factors too but one of the lessons that has been drawn is you can't be an absentee mp um okay let's not talk about scotland for another day like, you know i can scotland. talk about that at great length um you mentioned uh nikki uh, improvements that mm. you might like to see um if you had a majority government Oh, not for you, but if there was a majority, yeah. maybe you do want to lead a majority government. I don't know. I mean, you could certainly do as good a job as anybody that's, that's trying at the moment. I'm quite Everyone's sure. Everyone's announcing leadership. Let's do one for yeah. 15 years' time. Why not? But um, uh, yeah, if there was a majority government, and heaven knows if there ever will be, but um, yeah, what would those improvements be? I would be tempted, so if, if, I, if I was a future chief whip, I would be tempted to try and put the standing orders behind a um, some sort of super majority to say, so at the moment it, 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 they're worded in a way which basically said, you know, say that standing orders can be amended if a motion is brought by the Minister of the Crown. Um, uh, 
otherwise they would require you know a two-thirds majority in the house so what you want to do is create a rule such that um, you know you can tweak them if you need to so you've got the flexibility mm-hmm. there on government business but you've got a protection against the sort of the let one cooper moves uh, i'm not saying everyone's going to vote for this i'm just saying what i'd personally mm. um, personally do so that, that would be w- one aspect of it i think the second aspect is probably regarding the speaker uh, you would probably introduce uh, two term limits um, to prevent uh, uh, or uh, some way of saying maybe some rules yeah, or maybe some, well i think this, you know in general the speakers have you know, and, and we hear that also in the can. Uh, you know, they, they've they've um, respected and upheld uh, the role of the speaker as sort of that independent arbiter. Mm. Um, so I, I think in general, I, I hope that it will be redressed by a change in uh, who the current speaker is. Um, but I do think that there needs to be a way um, of managing it. So, for example, there isn't even a formalised no confidence motion in a speaker. So there's actually no mechanism to remove a speaker. So you could have a situation where Burko actually eventually would lose uh, a motion of no confidence and could say, well, that's all very well and good, but I ain't going. What now? What happens? The big question that comes up every episode, right? And we are recording this shortly after the government have revealed that uh, the WAB is coming. Mm. What's the WAB, Anand? It is the Withdrawal Agreement Bill. It is the piece of legislation that is needed to put the terms of the Withdrawal Agreement into our domestic law. Yeah, but you can't do that because MPs haven't passed a meaningful vote, so they don't want it. Well, politically, I'd have some sympathy with that view. Uh, well, in the sense legally, that, surely. Well, no, legally, That's the whole you can point of the meaningful that. vote, isn't it? Well, legally, you can pass the Withdrawal Agreement Bill whenever you want, as long as it's before you've left. There's no, there's no legal ruling that says it has to be before you agree to the agreement. It would be rather odd to pass the Withdrawal Agreement Bill and vote down the Withdrawal Agreement afterwards. That would look strange. But yeah. uh, what I suspect they will do is actually in the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, they will include a clause which basically uh, nullifies that previous legal requirement to have a separate vote on the withdrawal agreement. So basically it will overturn, uh, for the techie bit, Two birds, se- one stone. they will overturn Section 13 of the E-Withdrawal Act. Whoa, right, so hang on. So there won't be any need for MV4? No, you would basically say, uh, so at the moment Section 13 says that in order to ratify, you need to have both a meaningful vote and a bill. What they will say is that uh, in passing this Act... That counts as MV4, which will conjure up Gina Miller, who will march off to the. Why will it conjure up Gina Miller? Because didn't she do meaningful vote? No, no, no. This is all. This is all. No, that was Article Fifty. Yes, yes. schoolboy error. If they want to, if they want to revoke, all right, it'll conjure up Dominic Grieve. They'll conjure up Gina Miller if they try and revoke. Mm. Well, she'll be up anyway because you know she won't like it. Uh, But um, Dominic Grieve will be kicking off. I don't think so because you know my interpretation is certainly in Number Ten, and I think a lot of people's interpretation was you know meaningful vote was dressed up as about giving Parliament a democratic say when the interpretation I always had and we were working on is it was designed to create exactly the situation we have, which is deadlock. His, his meaningful vote has done exactly what he wanted, which is to make the case more likely for, you know, eventually revocation or a second referendum. Uh, it's done what it needed okay. to do. So perhaps indeed, if, no deal. Yeah. So why have we been having meaningful votes? Because why didn't the government just bring forward well, the WAB in January? Well, for two reasons. One, because that's what the legislation said, so it made sense. The second is because yeah, I've always suspected... But the legislation said it then, the legislation still well, says it, so does, does it make sense I mean, now or not? Well, the other, I think, more substantive reason is because you could probably assume it would be easier to pass the withdrawal agreement than it would be to pass the withdrawal agreement bill. Yeah. The, the, the fact of the matter is that the withdrawal agreement bill 
will contain some of the sordid detail that the withdrawal agreement covered up. How does the backstop work? Where does the Court of Justice really have jurisdiction? How much money are we paying when, over what time scale, when are the checks due? All those sorts of detail, which you know, you might have closed your eyes and voted mm. for the withdrawal agreement not thinking about, will suddenly be there. Right. I mean, you're, it's not hard, but you're making me feel stupid. Because have I missed something here? Because after passing the meaningful vote, you'd still have to pass the WAB anyway. Yeah. Yes. So what you might have had is MPs voting for a meaningful vote. Obviously, this is, as it turns out, never mm. going to happen. And then the WAB would come forward, yep. and then they get into the details and go, no, I don't like that. And I think that was probably in the Prime Minister's mind when she called the snap election, actually, wasn't it? I, I wasn't in the office at the time, but yes, you know, according to what people were thinking at the time, it's like basically saying, this majority isn't enough, we need to actually get uh, many more MPs to pass it. I mean, in, in terms of why, yes, it was in the legislature, why you'd have the withdrawal agreement, uh, sorry, the meaningful vote, and then the bill, um, there was always the presumption that you could have a couple of goes at the meaningful vote, uh, whereas if you have bring forward the bill and it's defeated, you can only go. That's that's it. That bill's dead ah. in that session. So it's actually a lot. It's a lot easier to go with the 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 spirit as well uh, um, of the, of the legislation. Oh, okay, that makes sense. But it does mean we're in, uh, you know, really at the sharp end now. Yeah, and it's worth just pointing out by way of historical analogy that in seventy one, when we did this in reverse. We agreed in principle to join the European Community by a majority of, I think, 112. We passed the European Communities Act, which was the equivalent at the time of the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, by eight. Mm. Now, there were differences because uh, one vote wasn't whipped. But uh, still, what that shows is you might sign up to something in principle and bulk at it when you see the detail. You both, well, certainly Nikki, and I think Anand, you're hinting that you both think the bill is going down. Yes, Anand? Yes. Then what? Then I think we have a. Uh, I think uh, well, we, we've got to wait for the outcome of of what the twenty two say about whether they're going to change the. You know, can can you change your leader? Can there be another vote of confidence in the uh, in the prime minister as conservative leader? Uh, and potentially, I think at that stage, there there are no. You know, I, I feel at the moment we're in a chess game whereby actually uh, you and Checkmate a long time ago, yeah. but you just continue, you, you yes. slog your way through all the remaining moves despite it being tremendously boring. Um, uh, and I feel that basically we, we would be in that situation, there would be nothing left to do. So therefore you have to almost say, okay, actually the game is now genuinely over. And the full splendor of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act will be revealed for all to see. Right. We'll have a government that just cannot do what it's been elected to do and a parliament that up to now has proven reluctant to get rid of it. Um, yeah, all right, that's all very good and, and nice and very good analogy, but it doesn't tell me what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> in terms of, when you say the game is yes. up, you mean okay. the game is up for Theresa May yes. or the so, game so, is so, up so, for so, the government? So, okay, I mean, because yes. you're so, saying the game is up and he said fixed term parliaments, which suggests to me you're saying Theresa May's got to go, but the Tories don't, so in if, terms of all the, the administration. If, if, if there is self, enough sense of self-preservation in the Conservative Party, then the managed way is to... Um, uh, certainly after the defeat of the second reading to then have uh, a vote of no confidence to say um, Prime Minister enough uh, to run a leadership election to try and um, ensure that that happens such that a new Prime Minister is in place for the summer recess that that recess is so important to hit the ground running because it's the only time when Parliament's not sitting where you can actually get you know your operation sorted you can you know build up to party conference you can get a sense of momentum if all of that happens, then actually I think it's possible you could turn the tide. You would have to have a firm position on what your policy is. You would have to know how you're going to handle your cabinet. There are various things you do. But 
there is that is one pathway. The other pathway is uh, there is, you know, yes, the second reading's been defeated, but the party, the Conservative Party, can't, you know, can't bring itself to, to 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 say enough is enough, and therefore we limp on, and then mm. we 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 just go towards the extension on the thirty first, and it, it just drags on. Or a and, vote of no confidence at that point. Yes, impossibly. In quite, the government. In, in the government. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And, and uh, it might be that either yeah. the ERG or the other wing of the Tory party will both just think, all right, we need to change the situation. It's possible, and then you'd be hoping basically they would need to spin it as basically say what we're doing here is not letting Corbyn in. What we're trying to do is trigger a 14-day period of reflection within our own party but it is high risk because they will be worried that people will say you are actually saying now bring in a Labour government. One of the interesting things last night at our beer and Brexit event was Heidi Allen saying straight off if there's a vote of no confidence in the government Change UK will vote with the government. What? I don't understand that. They're not ready for an election. Oh that's rubbish. (laughs) I hope you harangued her for it. Obviously you did because I, I watched it on the live stream. But um. <laughs> but this comes back to it throughout. The, the problem of the Fixed Term Parliament Act is that MPs have felt protected from the decisions. And, you know, for example, when we were looking at um, how these votes were eventually, you know, way back a year ago, um, and I was sort of having conversations with MPs and saying, you know, if we had a way of making this about a confidence vote, and they said, why should I have to take responsibility? Why should I have to suffer the risk to myself of a general election when the PM has failed to do X? And so there was that sort of distancing of it. The PM's failure to negotiate. The PM's done that. It's not because we haven't done it or something like yeah. that. And so therefore, the Fixed Employment Act has basically meant MPs didn't have to have any professional risk themselves. Um, they could decide whether to vote against or something like that. Uh, right, so where have we got to? When's the general election in Anand? I would say we will have a general, we'll, we'll have a general election this year. Yeah, when? I don't know when. This oh, year was quite on. good, I thought. No, that's rubbish. There's only six months well, left listen, this year. Is it going to be a summer let, one, essentially? We, you know, there's only a few weeks you can have a right, general election. So we're either talking about it's going to happen before Scottish schools go on holiday, back to Scotland again, uh, in June, or it's well, going to Scottish happen... school kids vote? Uh, no, but their parents go on holiday. Oh, do they? Uh, yeah, well, 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 some of them Scotland. do. Um uh, or it's got to be right. after conference you're into what is a, a small window in October, basically. Okay, in which case I change that to before Easter. But let me get, spell out the logic. And we before can, Easter? We can, we can do the time. Easter's been. Well, clearly not before last Easter. Oh, so not this year. Just listen. <laughs> I think the You've new, changed your mind in the last minute. I think the new leader of the Conservative Party will want to have an election. And yeah. I think so partly because of the example of Gordon Brown. Mm. Actually, even Theresa May, she might have gone as early as she could have gone anyway, but there is a sense that had she gone earlier, it might have been better. Secondly, because any new Prime Minister is going to take one look at Parliament and go, this will be a pretty crap job, I can't do anything. Mm. Uh, And thirdly, I think any new Prime Minister will have the massive, and I think it is a massive advantage, of not being Theresa May and not being Jeremy Corbyn. (laughs) Uh, Any... (laughs) <laughs> well, any future Prime Minister that comes to power under the method that Nikki was talking about, i.e. a leadership challenge within the Conservative Party rather than via a vote of no confidence mm. in the government. If the Tories change their leader and that gives us a new Prime Minister, I think they will be tempted to go for another general election. Now, how quickly that happens, I don't know. It partly depends on the leadership thing, so it might well drag into next year. But I suspect in that case we will get an extension, have the election, and then see where we're at. So, yeah, extension and election, because that's the other thing with an October election, of course, is you've got an extension at the end. Mm. <laughs> it's all mad, isn't it? Let's um, finish up with the features, starting with a new feature, new feature hand. This is very exciting. It's called, Hold on. It's called Who Said That? Who Said That? 
Oh, you have to name who said this. Um, it's sort of inspired by that, what's it called, Lions Led by Donkeys, where they put up quotes that people said that said, you know, leavers saying the EU is brilliant. Uh, see if you can tell me who said this. This is a Brexit, comes in the Brexit quotes, if you Google Brexit quotes. <laughs> it's a bit like the Gandhi thing. First they laugh at you, then they attack you, and then you win. Who said that? Apart from Gandhi, obviously. Who didn't actually say that? that. Yeah. Gandhi didn't say that. Did who said that? Ladies first. <laughs> it's a, it's a, 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 it was a party leader. Name me, a, name me a party leader who would misquote Gandhi. Jeremy Corbyn. Oh, good try. Not quite. As, even worse than that. Vince Cable. No, it was Paul Nuttles. Oh, Paul <laughs> Nuttles. Remember yeah, him. I mean, I only just for the record, we had worse than we had worse than uh, Jeremy Corbyn, and you said Vince Cable. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah. No, uh, <laughs> well, um, I was going with the, the, the clue of um, who would likely to quote Gandhi, and, and that, that's my excuse. I mean, I, I included him partly because although we're recording this now, it will go out after the Euro elections have happened, but before the results, oh, and we anticipate the return of Nigel Farage, right? Do you know in, that the results in, won't come out till Monday because yeah. of the Western Isles? Yeah, oh. um, because I spoke to you about it on Twitter yesterday. Um, yeah. But <laughs> but we are anticipating uh, Nigel Farage back in the game mm. in a big way, right? What do you mean by back in the game? He's, in, he's an MEP. Well, yeah, but that's not that's not back so in the game, in is the it? Game. Being an MEP is not a big job. Well, that's the job he's going to get. Yeah, all right, but in still terms in the of game profile. Let's uh, not overdo this. Oh come on, he's the most influential politician of the last. Ten years. He's been a very influential politician, Usually. and he's very good at what he does. He's going to get rid of another prime minister, right? Well, him with a few buddies in the Tory party. Well, all right, but um, okay. But it's we not are as if her position was looking rock solid before these European elections. To be fair, no, no, but all right. I suppose that's true. Um, but we are anticipating uh, big news for the Brexit party. Yes. yes. Well, they should do well in these elections. Yes. Come on. I mean, give they, me will, more do, than that. they will do eye-wateringly well for a party that's two months old. Eye-wateringly well. That's what I was looking for. For a party that's two months old. Um, and let's finish with the recommendations. Uh, in the unlikely event, this podcast has enlightened you sufficiently. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Yeah, what would you recommend? Uh, let's go to Nikki first while Anan thinks of something. I've got something. What, where are we going? So the thing that's always been in my mind is, and this is because I'm, I'm a qualified coach, which is the change curve. And this came out of sort of the 1960s uh, model of, of the grief process, which a lot of us are, f- mm-hmm. are familiar with. And it was basically a way of saying, explaining people's reactions to significant change or upheaval. And it basically says people go through shock, denial, anger, depression, acceptance, and then what they call integration, which is then moving forward with things. And I think what what's the failure of government has been the failure to understand people's reactions to things and so often when you have change happening in organization the management have been aware of it and they've done all the planning and they've got all their papers and everything and then they announce it but they've already been on this journey and then they're expecting people to come at it at the same level of emotion that they are then at but actually people are way behind them and so what we've seen time and time again when the government's tried to bounce or to announce something or to use the sunday papers to put something forward, what they're doing is they're trying to bounce not only you know, they're trying to bounce people's emotions and then they're shocked when people react negatively and go into these negative emotions of shock or denial or anger. Um, and there's no change process. So actually what would have been better throughout this is actually that attempt to understand how people will react to things and to take them through, to slow down when you are going through those difficult bits and then pick up your pace. But you can't do it the other way around. You can't try and pick mm. up the pace when you're there 
but other people are well behind. So I say, for example, when the deal came forward, that was a time actually to take time, not to bounce. Um, I know it's a slightly stupid question, but where are we on the change curve now then? Um, I, I think we're kind of stuck because there's been sort of no process. Yeah. I, I think, well, actually, I think what we, we saw actually in terms of that last meaningful vote uh, was actually you'd got quite a lot of people going through that shock, denial, anger, depression and going to acceptance. That was that wave of MPs that had previously voted against the deal two times and then said, actually, I'll vote for it. So they were in the acceptance phase, but not enough of them had come over. So I'd say we're probably as far into that as we can get. And now people are stuck because we're just not seeing much progress. Some of them have gone backwards. Though. Yes. Can, is that allowed in the change curve? Can you go back up the change curve? Do you know? I need to look into that. <laughs> Anand, what have you got this I'm week? going to recommend an episode of a rival podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's okay. Okay. Talking Politics, which is David Runciman and Helen Thompson at Cambridge. And every now and again, David, who's got the most fantastic voice, mm. uh, does a little sort of lecture thing on this podcast and he did one on politics and the Copernican principle which was a little bit wacky and it was about basically shelf lives I suppose how long things last and it's worth listening to because it gives you a real sense of how fragile democracy is how relatively recent a phenomenon it is and how viewed through a certain lens it absolutely isn't bonkers to think it might not be around that long and it was really thought-provoking Half hour, I think it was. Sounds a bit, sounds a bit depressing. Well, it didn't. It wasn't uplifting, no. But <laughs> okay. it was very interesting. Well, there's nothing wrong with being depressing. Just check in, just so people yeah. know before they listen yeah. that they're going to get a depressed. What's the Copernican principle? Well, uh, Isn't Copernicus like something to do with the stars or something? Or well, somebody, out of, it, the, somebody it, from the old days. Basically put, oh, simply put, it was the principle that we're not the centre of the universe. Mm. That actually the whole world, the whole thing doesn't revolve around us. And there is a danger when we look at things to think, oh God that's going to end and that's that's getting the Copernican principle wrong because if you look at something's lifespan you could say well actually that's been around for 200,000 years there's no reason why that should end while I'm alive that's attributing too much importance mm. to myself uh, it's not hard science it was just a really interesting way of thinking about these things and thinking about lifespans is it reasonable to think the planet will end in your lifetime probably not is it reasonable to think that democracy might well quite possibly because of lifespans Sounds good. Yeah. That's a good recommendation. We go. Well done. Just Thank, you very much. Head. Thank you very much. Put that amount of effort in every week. <laughs> so, there you go. Nikki da Costa. She was nice and had lots of genuine insight into Theresa May's operation. An operation most likely sputtering to a halt in the next few days. Or indeed... By the time you listen to this, it may have ended completely and we have a new Prime Minister. And something very special in that podcast, a good recommendation from Anand Menon that he's actually prepared. Anand's got a 2 out of 2 hit rate on this Series 3 so far. 2 out of 2 in Series 3, that's not too confusing. Uh, if you're happy about his constant appearances on this podcast, uh, or if you'd rather hear someone else, get in touch. I am at Political Yeti on Twitter. And my website is james-miller.com and you can find the full list of all the recommendations from all three series of the Brexit breakdown there. If you'd rather get in touch with UK and Changing Europe Direct, they are at UK and EU on Twitter and their website is ukandeu.ac.uk and you can find all the previous episodes of this podcast on there. The music again this week has been Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. And this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and a changing Europe. Supported by King's College London, 
and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back next time for another edition. Thank you and goodbye.